Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the delusions, absurdities, and alarmingly close calls of the Cold War. The captain of the ship orders the nuclear torpedo to be armed and prepared to be fired. The thing is, he because he doesn't have direct contact with the Kremlin, he must get the approval of two others. And junior commander Arkhipov says no, otherwise that nuclear missile would have been launched at a U.S. aircraft carrier surrounded by a number of destroyers, mm. and which would have probably premeditated World War III. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, this is no time to be dealing with amateurs. You need to bring in the professionals. Paranormal Contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They utilize the latest scientific technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call them at this new number, 631-552-5835. That's 631-552-5835. Email paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Journalist Brian Brown, the author of Someone is Out to Get Us, a not-so-brief history of Cold War paranoia and madness, is standing by. Have you subscribed to my free monthly newsletter yet, The Inner Sanctum? The November issue just went out yesterday, and subscribing is real easy. You just need to visit my website, strangeplanet.com. You'll see a big sign up for my free newsletter message at the top of the page. Just click on that. Fill in your email address and you're done. You'll receive the Inner Sanctum once a month for free. Plus, you'll be entered into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet merchandise like mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, phone cases, even socks, and more. Strangeplanet.ca From UFOs to Dr. Strangelove, LSD experiments to Richard Nixon, author Brian Brown investigates the paranoid, panicked history of the Cold War. Brian is a 15-time Emmy winner, the author of Ring Force and TV, a novel, and the co-writer and director of The Lost Gold, a 2016 feature-length documentary. Brian Brown, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. The Soviet Union, uh, you sort of portray it as this vacuum, and and Americans were kind of encouraged to fill it with their worst fears. Just kind of expound on that a little bit. Well, I grew up in Cold War America, and and so um, what is Cold War America being taught about the Soviet Union? Now, we, we do fill it up with this, it becomes the other, it becomes in our minds as, as we're kids and as we're being raised, it becomes kind of the antimatter version of America. However, what in, in doing this book, what I think we, we were never educated about was the state of the Soviet Union in 1945 when the Cold War begins. And I don't think I ever gained a full appreciation for just how much suffering and how much sacrifice was required of of the Red Army. I don't by any I don't want to be an apologist for Joseph Stalin who sent his soldiers to slaughter. But of the sixty or so million people who died in World War Two, 
25 to 30 million were Soviet citizens and Soviet soldiers. Um, and that war, at least the war in Europe, is really decided on the Eastern Front by ridiculous and awful Soviet sacrifice. 500,000 in Stalingrad alone. And I've heard statistics up to a million dead. But Stalingrad, you bring up Stalingrad, a, 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 a turning point battle in the war. So who was who the United States afraid of in 1945? In 1945, the United States is largely untouched. Uh, yes, Pearl Harbor had been attacked, but keep in mind Hawaii is a chain of islands 3,000 miles west of, of Los Angeles and San Francisco. So the United States is about to begin in 1945. It's untouched in that war. Uh, yes, it suffered hundreds of thousands of deaths, but not on the scale of, of, the, of the destruction that the Soviet republics have suffered. And the United States is about to begin this period of, of an economic boom, a, a period of consumption and growth, at the, what, the likes of which the world has never seen. In the meantime, what is going to happen from 1945, and it never ends, is that the Soviet state, which is really a bunch of gangsters operating out of the Kremlin, is never going to be able to satisfactorily house, feed, and clothe its citizens. However, what they end up having is the equalizer. And, and just as that nutcase in Korea has a nuclear weapon, a nuclear weapon is is an immediate equalizer in world affairs. I wonder what the world would have been like if, in 1945, the United States had more vigorously pursued the abolition of nuclear weapons. Hmm. Um, you had a, a small peek behind the Iron Curtain, I think around 1985. Tell me about, about the circumstances surrounding that and what your takeaway was. Uh, so in 1985, I'm, it's the summer, I'm doing my tour of Europe, I'm in a little rented car. At the East German border, I pick up some hitchhikers, and they have, they're about my age, I'm in my mid-twenties, they have nothing nice to say about the East German government, but eventually I need gas. And I get off what was called the transit road. Westerners were permitted to make a beeline to West Berlin on a transit road, but I had to get off. I needed gas, and inevitably, uh, in a, uh, a a corner, a dark corner of this gas station, were a couple of East German police, and they want my money. Well, first of all, they 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 order the hitchhikers out of the car, and they want my money. And now I have East German money because I was compelled to. Uh, uh, I, I was compelled to exchange some of my money for East German money. I was happy to give it to them. And the cop said to me, the policeman said to me, no, he doesn't want his own money. He wants my West German marks, which are much more valuable. But what was crazy and scary and absurd about it all is I'm having this debate with this East German policeman at night. And at, at one point, I'm, I'm a little, it's a little bit crazy, I'm negotiating with him. He doesn't speak English. I speak very little German. But at one point, I'm waving my U.S. passport, and, and he says to me, not USA. And then he points to the ground and says, they, they are. Hmm. <laughs> Implying that if he wanted to put me in a ditch, if he wanted to shoot me and put me in a ditch, no one would ever find me, which would have been accurate. Now, when you're the peak behind the Iron Curtain, and I was in Czechoslovakia and... Uh, I went to Hungary, and then I finished up in East Germany, is that time had stopped. Um, after the war, it was throughout Eastern Europe. It was sort of permanently 1951. And the kind of the metaphor symbol of, of the, the East German state, and for that matter, uh, an entire Soviet empire that never made anything that anyone wanted to buy, was the Trabant. So here's the Trabant, and I'm driving in a little European-made compact car, and I am outracing the Trabant on these crappy East German roads. And the Trabant was a drab car, kind of a bad version of a Volkswagen with a top speed of 49 miles an hour. <laughs> and if you could even get a Trabant, 
uh, you'd have to wait online. You had to you had to be politically in the you had to be a political insider. You know what you got was a piece of crap anyway. So for for those who would spend any period of time behind the iron curtain, inevitably you end up in West Berlin, and that's the Oz moment that would have happened to virtually everybody who did this. Is you went from this black and white world stuck in 1951, and now this is the mid 80s. I arrive in the color and, and, and festiveness of Berlin in the 1980s, uh, the, the nightclubs, the fast food restaurants, uh, the, 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 the joy, and you say to yourself, I'm home. Mm. <laughs> but that contrast was incredibly dramatic. Um, and I think, uh, I don't think I was the only Westerner who, who experienced that and said we're afraid of this right right and four years later of course the wall comes tumbling down yes and the wall comes tumbling down with this the the famous story of this 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 middle level manager who who mistakes a directive and all of a sudden you know there's thousands of people at the various uh, uh, checkpoints and you know, and one East German officer who's who, who's not getting the right answer says, "Oh fuck it!" Excuse me, you might not be able to use that. <laughs> he says, "Oh, that, the heck with it!" And and then the wall is coming down, and it, it happens so suddenly. I mean, we can. What I find interesting about the wall falling down and where where there's relevance today is there's a KGB colonel in Dresden who is following all of this very anxiously, and you know who that is. Putin, yeah. So Vladimir Putin is watching all of this happening in 1989. All of a sudden, these people are taking axes to the wall, and he's burning all of his documents in the KGB headquarters in Dresden, and people are surrounding the building. He goes out with a gun. He threatens to shoot them all. He comes back in, and he says, where are the tanks? Because that's how the Soviets literally rolled <laughs> uh, in 1956 and 1968. And Vladimir Putin is told Moscow by the local tank commander, Moscow is silent. Mm. Vladimir Putin liked, for, although I thought East Germany was ridiculous, Vladimir Putin liked living in East Germany. He liked the German beer. His wife liked the cleanly neighbors. He, he liked that his appliances worked, <laughs> his washer and dryer. Yeah. Yeah. In 1989, Vladimir Putin is headed back as, as East Germany comes apart. He's headed back to Leningrad, dragging his East German appliances with him, fearing that he may end up driving a cab. Hmm. We are living his revenge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not with a a bang, but a whimper. Um, Well, a whimper then, then, but it was. That whole thing ended with an extraordinary whimper, didn't it? Yeah. But if we take us back, I mean, to the height of the Cold War when the tension and the paranoia was so palpable. I remember just a very quick story, uh, but I, I interviewed this gentleman uh, down in Santa Monica. He was a psychiatrist, and he was talking about uh, the October missile crisis and how close people felt they were to nuclear Armageddon. And he said that he and his wife were listening to the car radio driving along Santa Monica Boulevard, Things got so tense at one point, they said they pulled the car over to the side of the road and they embraced each other as if to say, this is it, goodbye. So, uh, Richard, how old were you about at that time? Oh, I was uh, uh, nary a twinkle in my mother's eye. I was born in January of 64. Okay, so I, I'm a little older than you, so I'm, I'm at the time, you know, I'm uh, almost four years old. And here's the deal. You picked a you picked a very important point in, in in terms of the peak paranoia and 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 you know the very edge of the nuclear abyss. And the thing is, it was worse. Those people, as you described them, that couple that you knew, is if they knew, <laughs> it's good they didn't know all the things that were going on. Is so. For example, what happens? What we've what we've learned since then is that Curtis LeMay, who is, the, the, who, is, who is running the Air Force, is trying to bait the Soviets into a, into a nuclear exchange 
by he, he's he's testing nuclear missiles off the Pacific coast, and he's he also has the B-52s flying past their typical turnaround points. Then, what the Soviets, what what Jack Kennedy did not know is that the Soviets, in addition to the missiles, which were being photographed famously by the U-2 overflights, is and satellite photography. What what he doesn't know is that the Soviets also have 100 tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba, which were going to be used in the event of an American invasion. Now, the reason why Curtis LeMay and, and, and the Pentagon, who are calling Jack Kennedy a coward for not immediately invading, they, they thought they were going to face a, a handful of Soviets with, with a handful of missiles. What they didn't know is that had the United States invaded, there, there would have been... <laughs> There would have been immediately a massive nuclear exchange. All of, the, virtually all of the American invasion force would have been uh, uh, erased, uh, and and things would have just gotten worse from there. But in addition to that, both the United States and the Soviets were testing something called the Christophilus effect, which was this belief that if you exploded a nuclear weapon in space, it would create kind of this electromagnetic shield that would prevent incoming missiles from, from reaching the ground. So during the Cuban Missile Crisis, both the United States and the Soviet Union send rockets into space and blow up nuclear weapons in space. Finally, there's Vasily Arkhipov. And so the Soviets have what the Americans didn't know this either. The Soviets had submarines, each with a, a nuclear-tipped torpedo. Now. Two weeks into the Cuban Missile Crisis, Ar- this this submarine, at which the Vasily Arkhipov is one of the one of the junior commanders, it, it's 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 lost contact with Moscow. Uh, its its engines are fading, and what's hap- What it doesn't know is that the American the Americans have told the Soviets that to get the to get the subs to surface, they were sending they were tossing practice grenades effectively or practice depth charges. But this this particular Soviet sub doesn't know that the captain of the ship orders the the nuclear torpedo to be armed and prepared to be fired. But the thing is, he because he doesn't have direct contact with the Kremlin, he must get the approval of two others. And uh, junior commander Arkhipov says no, uh, but otherwise that nuclear missile would have been launched at a... U.S. aircraft carrier surrounded by uh, a number of destroyers, mm. and which would have probably premeditated World War III. Right. So, all of these things were happening. Many of them that neither Kennedy or Khrushchev probably even knew about. Right. So it was right. worse. It was worse <laughs> and crazier. And we came during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We came much closer to uh, nuclear extinction. But that hardly was the only time. No, no, several times after, at least. Uh, two sort of quintessential Cold War movies, Kubrick's black comedy, Dr. Strangelove, and uh, Sidney Lumet's uh, Failsafe. Uh, you know, Strangelove was a, a farce, but we're now learning that just about everything about those two movies, this scenario that a rogue general... Uh, like a, a Curtis LeMay, could start a nuclear war with the, the Soviets without uh, the president's consent, that turns out that could have happened because Eisenhower sort of delegated that authority to away. He, he did, uh, but, but more than that, uh, American generals, by the, um, after the Bay of Pigs in particular, uh, the, the American generals who... Uh, who had a great deal of respect for Eisenhower and much less for Jack Kennedy, who, after all, was only a PT boat commander. Uh, they, the, the, the generals lose a great deal of respect for Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs when they, they believed that Kennedy should have... Suppl- once it was clear that the, that the, uh, uh, the anti-Castro Cuban fighters were, were getting slaughtered, that Kennedy should have called in the, the Marines, so to speak. He should, have, he should have supplied additional air support, etc., so, General Lyman Limnetzer is the is the is the is the uh, the head of the Joint Chiefs, 
And there's something called Operation Northwoods, which is a serious plan by the Pentagon to create false flag operations. In other words, shoot American soldiers and blame it on the Cubans, blow mm. up American ships and blame it on the Cubans. And the best plan, or the most the craziest, but this is all like true. Yeah, it included <laughs> a plot to kill a plot to kill astronaut John Glenn. Yeah, so Glenn, uh, the Soviets, uh, the Soviets beat the United States to the, into space with Sputnik, but they also very notably uh, send two astronauts into orbit before the United States sends even one. So Glenn is number three in the Mercury program, and it's decided that he sh- he should. He needs to orbit the Earth for national pride. But to do that, he has to do it on a bigger rocket, which was, at the time, that was the Atlas rocket was going was to give him the heft to get him into orbit. The problem with the Atlas rocket was it, it blew up half the time. It had a 50% fail rate. And Glenn knew this because he had witnessed it blowing up. <laughs> so uh, what, the, what Lemnitzer and Operation Northwoods, as part of this thinking, was that there was a reasonable chance that Glenn would blow up and they were going to blame it on the Soviets and the Cubans. In particular, apparently the Russians would always have these trawlers off of, uh, of what was then Cape Canaveral monitoring all of our space flights. So they were going to make this, they were going to explain that it was some kind of interference by these, by these Russian ships and, and use, that, use Glenn's glorious death as a pretext to invade Cuba. Mm. And uh, was it McNamara or Kennedy that actually said, no, we're not doing this, get out of here? Well, ev- eventually, eventually Lemnitzer seriously presents this. I mean, they're plotting some of these things even before they formally present it to McNamara and Kennedy. But it's presented, McNamara gets it, it's presented to McNamara and, and McNamara uh, reassigns Lemnitzer to, uh, I, he ends up with a big job with NATO. But uh, that, that's, how they, uh, that's, that's how they get rid of him. <laughs> right, right. Um, so this, this madness, this paranoia, uh, some of which may have been legitimate, a legitimate fear, but uh, I'm wondering to what extent, and stick with me here, this is a, a little bit conspiratorial, but it is the uh, Conspiracy Unlimited uh, podcast after all. But I'm wondering, you know, when the, uh, through Operation Paperclip, you had, you know, the, um, Hitler's spy chief on the East, Eastern Front, uh, Reinhardt. Yeah. Uh, Reinhardt Galen. Galen, exactly. Yeah, Galen. Yes. Uh, so he comes in and he's helping around the OSS. And I'm wondering how much of this uh, fear of the Soviets was kind of ginned up by the Nazis uh, that were inside the OSS. I think you bring up a very good point, and it's not conspiratorial at all. Again, we keep learning more about this, which is that uh, a portion of the uh, American army, a portion of the Pentagon, and to some extent, you know, Alan Dulles, as, as, as he's going to move from the OSS to trying to establish the CIA, and other elements of the U.S. government, never liked the communists or the Soviets very much anyway. They are our allies, but... As, as Hitler is defeated, almost immediately uh, a large segment of very powerful people in the U.S. military establishment begin to prepare for the next war, which they think will be against the Soviets. And, and what they start doing is they're capturing every valuable Nazi uh, military asset they can, they can, they can round up. Now, but that very famously, it's it's Werner von Braun, and and the rocket scientists, and 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 the Operation Paperclip, as the collection of Nazi scientists is called, is called Paperclip because paperclips were were placed on the folders of the rocket scientists because administrative aides had to launder these guys to repatriate them. So that that process also begins up is is they're cleaning up all of their Nazi past. But we don't just take rocket scientists; we take guys who've been charged at the Nuremberg trials, who suspiciously won in particular, Dr. Kerr Bloom, suddenly is, 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 is suspiciously acquitted. But we don't, but you go, let's go back to Galen, is we take Nazi intelligence, and we take the Nazi war room, and we take those Nazi generals, and we bring them back to the United States. So we effectively create 
the the Nazi military complex, the Nazi war room, and and all of its best assets here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the Nazis hate the Soviets. They think of they think of the Soviets. They think of Eastern Europeans as lesser people. And there there, there were some, in in a sense, the Dachau model, and 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 the Nazi, uh, the, the vile Nazi philosophy ends up insinuating itself into into the the American into American military and political thinking. Right, right. Um, now, I'm, I'm remembering, remembering that line from All the Right Stuff uh, about the space race and the Cold War. And at one point, I forget who says it to who. One American astronaut asks another, "Do you think we'll beat the Russians to the moon?" And he says, "Yes. Our Nazis are better than their Nazis." Well, I think we got the we we got the bulk of the. That's true. So Werner von Braun, uh, Werner von Braun, uh, the Soviets are coming and they're they're up at Pinamunda and and he he t- he takes the bulk of the group with him to a to an alpine ski resort where he waits out the end of the war and then surrenders the rocket program on Moss and the rocket program on Moss ends up in. At first, in, in El Paso, Texas, where they start to object to the what they call the rubber chicken, they don't really like the American food, uh, but they do like American ice cream. So yes, so our Nazi rocket scientists were better because we're gonna. It's it's von Braun's rocket, right? The Saturn, the Saturn booster, all of that. That's that's. That's Nazi. That's German engineering. Nazi engineering that gets us to the moon. That's that's a fair assessment. Right. But you you, you when mentioned we talk about oh. when we talk about the space program. When you bring up all the right stuff, you, you know, uh, I think Tom Wolfe's book is he, he's a little bit cryptic. What he, you know what he's getting at, right, is that the whole thing was kind of silly, right? Right. Right. Sput, Sputnik. Sputnik was part of, in 1957, Sputnik was part of the International Geophysical Year, and it, the idea was it was a community of scientists were going to tr- figure out how to get something into space. And all Sputnik was was a, was a big ball of metal that they gave out a beep. And when it happens, Soviet and American scientists are actually in Washington, and they're, they're observing it, and American scientists are congratulating the Soviet scientists for putting Sputnik up, and it's like no big deal. But the big deal that was happening and, and gets lost is 10 years earlier, the United States, with famously with Chuck Yeager, is beginning the X-Series, which is a rocket, a manned rocket, that's reaching the tip of space that is really the, uh, the prototype for a space shuttle and, and a much more sensible space vehicle, something you send into space and then you come back and, and you, 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 you guide it and you can... It, it, it just it has uh, it has all kinds of more sensible features as a space program as opposed to what we end up doing. So sp- when you want to talk about paranoia and craziness, here's this little round ball that the Soviets put up, and 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 America panics. And part of that panic is effectively putting people like John Glenn on top of rockets mm. with fifty percent failure rates. But more than that, you know. They were being placed on top of missiles. They were they were just they were just getting flung into space. And of course, uh, the on both counts, the, the 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 early space travelers for the Soviets were a bunch of stray dogs that they picked up off the streets in Moscow. And for the United States, it were, it were chimpanzees who were the early <laughs> who were the early astronauts. Right. You but, you mentioned. But, oh, sorry. Finish yeah, your thought. Yeah. No, I, I but. <laughs> The, the the X the the uh, the X program the X it was the, the, it was up to the, like the X fifteen that program which was far more sensible just sort of gets gets shunted aside um, in in the in the sort of the, the the need to get somebody into into orbit. More of my conversation with Brian Brown when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Christian D. Cadu, they call him the real John Constantine from Paranormal Contractors. He joins us every Friday. Christian, welcome back. 
Thanks, Richard. Paranormal Contractors is a subsidiary of crime and trauma scene cleaners. And you were at a home recently where the deceased had committed suicide. And there was some strange things happening there. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, it's a proven fact that the deceased can communicate with us via electronics, via electricity, power sources. There's certainly no stranger to that. And we were recently working uh, an environment of unfortunate and tragic circumstances of a self-infliction. And within, I would say, within 24 to 36 hours of the incident that took place. Now, upon arrival, and we entered the home and started to begin to decontaminate and, and sterilize the environment, the closer we approached the contamination, the lights throughout the entire environment were flickering off and on uh, as we plugged in our equipment in order to begin to remediate and recover uh, certain forms and types of contamination. In fact, our our equipment uh, shorted and whatever was going on there uh, was certainly not being very cooperative in allowing us to to do our, our job. So, and this is a common thing that we find all the time, Richard, is that electronics and, and lights, uh, lights will always, whether it is a, a surge in energy from the environment as a result of the trauma, because we're talking about high trauma with uh, a substantial amount of energy, whether it's negative or positive, the fact is, is that we have an increase of energy. Now, that energy can also be associated with electromagnetic. And it will, in fact, affect mechanical equipment, equipment that we use, as well as something as simple as lights. They will flicker on and off. And it is a a common observation that uh, we have seen time and time again. And again, the effect to your equipment was most intense in the immediate vicinity of, of where the deceased was found. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. As we approached the the hot zone which is the area where the uh, visible signs of contamination were present and essentially for all intents purposes that's where the tragic incident took place this is where things become even that much more volatile and that much more confusing uh, to to understand in the activity level in that particular area i would say within probably a three meter radius from the incident that took place is where the highest concentration of paranormal activity uh, while we're performing our services are certainly uh, taking place. Fascinating. All right, Christian, you always come with amazing stories. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Always my pleasure, Richard. Thank you so much. If you have a ghost or demon problem, contact Paranormal Contractors, 631-552-5835, 631-552-5835. Email paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Brian Brown, the author of Someone Is Out To Get Us, is here. I just wanted to finish up with a couple other points on, on Paperclip because, you know, this was sort of one of the outcomes of of this paranoia and this Cold War, exfiltrating these people that escaped the hangman's noose in Nuremberg. One of them was Walter Dornberger, uh, who ends up running Bell Helicopter in the United States. And and, uh, I believe introduced Michael and Kathy Payne to Lee Harvey Oswald, but that's another show. Um, Then we had, you mentioned uh, Dr. Kurt Bloom, uh, because this was the other aspect that the Allies or that the Americans wanted—not only the rocket scientists, but they wanted these mind control experts. So the, the Nazis were the Nazis were working with the, sort of the beginning, the recreational drug use that flowers in the '60s, uh, mescaline and LSD and 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 marijuana and every other uh, speed and every other sort of thing that was tried by that generation. All of that. 
All of that was being done, unfortunately, on concentration camp inmates in the 1940s. And with the belief that, let's focus on LSD, with the belief that you could give somebody a psychotropic substance like that, a psychedelic, and you could make people tell you what you needed to know and maybe even forget that they even told you. So, so the Germans were working on this. And what happens is the United, what the United States does in Germany is they, they, they use what was the Luftwaffe's interrogation center and they just make it the American interrogation center. And there's a guy named Dr. Kurt Blom who, who, was, uh, who was charged uh, at one of the subsequent Nuremberg trials, the doctor's trial, and he's the one in particular who suspiciously is acquitted. And shortly after he's acquitted, he is running, quote-unquote, the mind control program, or where he's one of the people that is running the mind control program. And the, the whole thing about the mind control program is there was a fear that the Soviets were doing it. We could talk about brainwashing as, as, as something that, that a, a CIA agent came up with as a fiction. But let's go back to mind control. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. But going back to mind control is what, unfortunately, uh, what, what is unfortunately true about giving people LSD or mescaline or magic mushrooms or these other things is, is it just, it just, it doesn't make you any more coherent. It makes you incoherent. It, it, it often, it often leads to uh, uh, psychological destruction, and it's anything but useful as an interrogation tool. Right, right. There was that incident uh, with the French bread uh, that uh, spiked with LSD by the CIA. Uh, Saint Esprit back in the early fifties that had rather tragic consequences. And and also very famously Frank Olson, who is the yes. um, who who ends up somehow uh, falls, is thrown, is jumps out of a window of a New York City hotel shortly after. He is at a CIA retreat, and Sidney Gottlieb is is a name you've probably addressed. Mm-hmm. He becomes the, the the sort of the the central the central figure in the in the CIA domestic LSD program. But Dr. Frank Olson, the suspicion is that Dr. Frank Olson had had seen an off, a, a lot of very awful things in Europe. He was part of the bacteriological chemical warfare unit, but but sh- he goes to a CIA retreat, and Sidney Gottlieb spikes. Uh, his drink and the drink of three other associates, uh, and he starts to go on a bad trip, becomes incredibly paranoid, um, but is but is also uh, very conflicted about all the things he's seen and he's done. And he ends up the CIA ends up bringing him to New York allegedly for psychiatric treatment, and he's you know he's he's found on a uh, on a Manhattan sidewalk under what remain <laughs> very suspicious circumstances. Right. Right. Uh, didn't Forrestal uh, die under similar circumstances? James Forrestal is one of the saddest stories I came across. So he's the secretary; he's the, he's the first secretary of defense of the United States, which is, which by itself is a uh, uh, is an impossible task, because in the United States the rivalries the rivalries in the Army and the Navy and the Air Force is was impossible, and that's why Truman did it. He thought Forrestal had the the strength of personality to herd that herd these these dueling uh, services. But Forrestal, Forrestal comes out of the war uh, with, he's a, he was a successful uh, investment banker. Uh, he was part of the group that arranges uh, the, the, the association with, with, uh, with Saudi oil. Um, he is, he's he, He's the Secretary of the Navy, and it really is the Navy that wins the war in the Pacific. But as our Navy grows from, the United States Navy grows from 500 ships to 50,000, when he comes out of the war, he realizes how important oil is to the, to the balance of power. Um, and as he's, he's both, he's a, he's a capitalist who... Who finds communism appalling? So uh, he has a he, he is one of the people that overhypes the Soviet menace, and then he gets into uh, a, a real uh, dispute with Truman over Truman's uh, support of the state of Israel, because Forrestal believes that um, by recognizing Israel, uh, we will 
we will create uh, a revolution uh, among the Arab states, which will compromise American access to Middle East oil. So all of these things are going on. He's the Secretary of Defense, which, again, which is an impossible job. Uh, he's opposing Truman. And then uh, he, becomes, he becomes the object of derision by two very powerful journalists, Walter Winchell, who is an anti-communist from the right, and Andrew Pearson, who was the muckraker from the left. Drew Pearson thinks Forrestal is a warmonger, and, and Winchell has problems with Forrestal's position on the Jewish state. And the two of them begin to uh, assault him and smear him, and he ends up having to leave the job. He ends up in a state of, of, of deep depression, uh, is sent to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital, um, and during the course of treatment, ends up taking his own life, jumps out a window. Mm. Um, you were mentioning, you know, the Middle East, and, you know, people think, many uh, uh, people think of the Cold War as, you know, the non-shooting war, but the Cold War led to all of these proxy wars, including, you know, the revolution in China and, and, and uh, the wars in, in throughout Africa and the Congo and, and, of course, Southeast Asia, Vietnam. So the Cold War ends up being perhaps one of the, the bloodiest wars in history. Uh, there are estimates that as many as 40, 40 million people died in those Cold Wars, and those Cold Wars are happening everywhere. I, uh, we, we, we might forget that the war in Korea, and the war in Korea, four or five million people died in, in that war. Um, and the kind of, uh, on the American side, the, 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 the kind of, of, of area bombing that we did in Japan, we did in Korea. Uh, two or three million North Koreans were killed by, by U.S. bombing. Uh, Vietnam, Vietnam is a war that the French lose um, with, and, and then, and that's, and that's 1954, and that goes, and Vietnam goes on for another 20 years with millions of deaths. And then Vietnam, the situation in Vietnam destabilizes Laos, and it destabilizes Cambodia, and that leads to Pol Pot and the killing fields of Cambodia. Uh, so, but you pick a continent, and and forces, uh, forces with allegiance to the United States and forces with allegiance to the Soviet Union are pairing off throughout the Cold War period from 1945 until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. You're absolutely right. Uh, for me, growing up in the, in the 70s, and I remember the, um, I don't know if you're a hockey fan, but for me, the, the Canada-Russia Summit Series of 1972, I mean, that's just iconic for Canadian kids. Uh, beating you know beating the the bad Russians and Paul Henderson scoring the the winning goal in dramatic fashion. I remember reports from the Canadian hockey players Phil Esposito and and others talking about how their hotel rooms were being bugged and uh, Alan Eagleson, who's a Toronto lawyer who kind of helped negotiate this series. At one point, there was a, he was being pulled out of the arena in Moscow by secret police and, and some of the Canadian hockey players had to intercede and they got into kind of a tug or tug of war. Um, to me, that was the Cold War. But I'm just wondering, because there was that kind of that cooperation behind the scenes. You were mentioning Sputnik and there were other uh, areas where despite the tension on the ground, there was a great deal of cooperation going on between the Russians and the, the United States or the Russians and the Canadians, which almost, it seemed to belie uh, or, uh, this, this Cold War, almost as if it was a lie. Well, you bring up a, what, what was very important, thank goodness for sports in, in many respects, because um, the, the Olympics, again, in the athlete's village, um, and on 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 a, on a hockey rink, and and in, ma in many other venues, uh, Soviet and American athletes uh, had an innate respect for for their their fellow competitors, for the for the nature of competition, and and you know we we unfortunately, and this happens too often, is uh, the, the Soviet Union got conflated with with Joseph Stalin. It's still in some ways conflated with. Joseph Stalin, but for anybody, and I have traveled, I have traveled to Russia. For anybody who's who's traveled 
uh, and who was traveling there even even at the height of the Cold War is the people. The people are hospitable. The people are wonderful. The people will set out uh, a banquet of food for you, and 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 their lives are like everybody else's lives. They're struggling to make it through the day. When you talk about sports, the, there was uh, it, it was very important that that those sorts of exchanges continued to happen because sports, in particular, is so transcendent in so many ways. When you bring up the Canada. Soviet hockey series. Yes, I remember that because uh, I'm a hockey fan. But all of the Canadian players are American, are, are people who are playing on the NHL teams. Right. So we had our own loyalties to all of those players because they were. Uh, I mean, by the, at that point, pretty much the NHL, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is still ninety percent of the of the top players are Canadians in the NHL, if not more. Is that fair? Yes. Yes. So. But here's and tell me what you think of this uh, because I, uh, it, it it reminds me the first time I saw a Soviet team play soccer I was at the 1986 World Club and what what I you know I was expecting some cliche but what I saw was a team that played with a great deal of creativity and a great deal of art and for me and tell me if I'm wrong about this don't the Russians play a beautiful game of hockey. Oh, well, they did. Uh, in 72, uh, it was nothing like we had ever seen. They passed with such precision. Uh, and they trained, the, their hockey players, they trained uh, by playing soccer. Uh, because, and their footwork was amazing. They, could, they would pass with their sticks. They would pass with their skates. It was nothing like we'd ever seen, seen before. Uh, and we, but it was, but it was yeah. also, there was, there was something, wasn't there something... Didn't they turn it into something of a dance of sorts? I mean, there was something innately creative about it, too. Oh, absolutely. They, they, they yeah. were so fluid on the ice. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, again, for as an American kid, you, you were you become raised with this caricature of the of the brutish, the brutish uh, uh, Soviet um, sinister Soviet uh, uh, with with you know. With, yeah, Boris and Natasha from uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. From Rocky Bullwinkle, <laughs> yes. But I'm trying to—it's just the—the—the the, the idea, the, the the idea that that the Soviets were disgraceful and disgraceful and this emotive in their in in the way they played and and this expressive was a bit of was a bit startling based upon the negative stereotypes that you had been presented with. Sure, it humanized them. And we all fell in love with Trechak when we played ball hockey <laughs> for the next 10 years. If you were playing gold, you were Vladimir Trechak. Right, right. Uh. So, uh, what to, what's, what's the takeaway? What did we learn, if anything, from uh, you know, those 40 years? Well, I, how, does, how does it begin? What I'm struck by is how it, how it begins to end. And incredibly, the Ronald Reagan of, 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 his, of the first term, the bellicose evil empire Ronald Reagan, is, is a very different Ronald Reagan in the second term when he meets with Mikhail Gorbachev. And what he recognizes is that Mikhail Gorbachev is different. But what they bond over is uh, abolishing nuclear weapons. And uh, Gorbachev finds it somewhat remarkable that Reagan believes this, uh, but, he, but he does. And... Um, you know, a film that really affected Reagan was The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm -hmm. in which, um, uh, and, and, and this becomes a, a very a, a narrative for humanity, this, this notion that we have, we, have t we have opened the Pandora's box, the atomic age has begun, uh, unidentified flying objects now seem to be everywhere, um, and this movie taps into this notion that uh, other members of, of the of, of the universe have come to warn us and and it really did have an effect on Reagan and Reagan never uh, never liked the idea that we had offensive nuclear weapons you know the idea that you would defend it you would defend yourself makes sense but the idea that you would destroy preemptively destroy another nation and erase it was always an anathema to him so that's uh, Gorbachev and Reagan bond over that, but Reagan, Reagan very famously says to him, bringing up the 
the, the sci-fi movies and the alien invasion movies of, of that, that, that sort of become very popular in the early 50s, he says, said to Gorbachev, apparently, um, you know, if we were invaded by aliens, would you, uh, would you join with us to repel the invasion? And Gorbachev says, absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, it seems kind of silly, but the two of them in Geneva have this, have this, this moment of, of unity. And, and as you talked about, uh, with, that would, with that would, this fraternity that would happen in sports, it finally happens with these two men, and they continue to meet. They meet another three times. And, gee, it would have been, it would have been great for the world if, if, the, if the people in the Kremlin and the people in the White House uh, got together a lot more often. Indeed. Uh, Brian, where can uh, people get a hold of uh, Someone is Out to Get Us, a not-so-brief history of Cold War paranoia and madness? The easiest way is go to the website someoneisouttogetus.com, and that's all you need to know. Terrific. Brian, a real delight. Thanks for hanging out. Me too. Pleasure. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. Time for a visit from Colleen Forgus, our certified nutritional therapy consultant who manages the full script dispensary at strangeplanet.ca. Welcome once again, Colleen. Hi, Richard. You know, everybody I know seems to have digestion problems because I think a lot of it has to do with people just rushing around and not sitting down to eat properly. What do you think? I think you have hit on it for sure. You know, digestion starts with your eyes and when you start to think about visualizing food, that starts creating salivation in your mouth. We are all running around so busy, it's really important to take time, sit down with your family and enjoy your meal. Relax, be in a parasympathetic state. I want to make sure that people are chewing their food well so that their saliva is incorporating with the food. That is an important process because that starts to break down the food before it gets into the stomach. But just make sure that we take time to be relaxed, grateful, and enjoy our food with our families every day. Excellent. And what do we have on the full script dispensary site for digestion? Well, you know, for those times when our digestion isn't working optimally and we're having with upset stomach, maybe some diarrhea, there's a product by Biotics Research called Gastrozyme that I absolutely love. It's just a couple of little tablets you take anytime or if you're traveling and you've got digestive upset, Gastrozyme by Biotics Research is my go-to product. Fantastic. Colleen, we'll talk again. Thank you, Richard. Take care. Full script. Nature grade. Science made. These products have not been assessed by the FDA and are not intended to treat, cure, or diagnose. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider. Coming up next time, a peek inside Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the real Area 51. When I give a talk, I say, how many of you in the audience have ever heard of Area 51? And all the hands go up. How many of you have heard of Wright-Patterson? And very few hands go up. But uh, Wright-Patterson was um, basically Area 51 before there was an Area 51. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. New Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.